the conversation sometimes gets like weed good, weed bad, and it can be legal and there can be problems with it and abuses. That's something that I think needs to be talked about. It seems like the decision here is either between making money off of the tax revenue or spending billions on locking people up for it. So I'm, I'm definitely for the former there. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, audience, if my audio sounds a little weird, I am abroad for a wedding, so I apologize. There may be a little bit of an echo, but I'm super pumped to tackle the issues of the week. You may have noticed that we didn't have an episode on Tuesday, but we'll be back to our regular schedule of two episodes, at least for next week. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. We have our newsletter out, and in that newsletter, I review my friend Jason Kander's book all about overcoming post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in Afghanistan. And Corey has a new episode of Stitch This where he interviews Evan the Counselor, who's a a guy who's just built a tremendous audience on TikTok uh, talking about mental health issues. So I guess this is our mental health content week at Lost Debate. But Corey, I know we have some other stories to tackle. Where are we going to start? On today's show, weed, pot, chronic, jazz cigarettes, the devil's lettuce, za, whatever you or your parents want to call it, much of the nation is moving toward legalizing marijuana. We'll debate the high stakes. The Biden White House is locked in a fight with charter schools over new funding rules. We'll talk about that showdown. And the war in Ukraine may be shifting in Russia's favor. We'll bring you an update on the balance of military power there. And finally, we'll have a special Euro trip edition of Ravi's Wild Radical Ideas. But first things first, it's time to bear down for a bear market, folks. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates yesterday after May's inflation report. The current picture is plain to see. The labor market is extremely tight and inflation is much too high. Against this backdrop, today the Federal Open Market Committee raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point and anticipates that ongoing increases in that rate will be appropriate. But while the stock market has officially entered bear market territory, slipping over 20% from its January high, the question still remains if the economy will fall into a recession. Ravi, has the Fed fumbled the ball on a soft landing or is there still some hope here? Yeah, I think there's a lot that the Fed has done and we've covered this a few times now, that you can't undo now. So it's a, it's a little bit too little too late. It actually may be too much too late, but the numbers here are pretty staggering. Inflation increased 8.6% in May, the fastest pace in over 40 years. The Federal Reserve, in response to this, increased interest rates by 0.75%, which is the largest increase since 1994. The S&P 500 decreased 3.9% on Monday, which is down 22% from the record high in January, which makes it officially a bear market because 20% drop from the high is the sort of uh, the indicator that we use for a bear market. In the past six months, $9 trillion in wealth has been wiped out uh, through stock wealth uh, in households. And if you add crypto and other assets, that's $13 trillion in wealth that's been wiped out. In our country. And so this happens at a time where, you know, one set of positive news, though, is that employers added 390,000 jobs in May, which is good news, but that leads to an increase in the costs of services and in some cases goods because you have to pay people more to compete for that demand. And so we really are in a, in a really precarious situation. CNBC interviewed the 22 top chief financial officers. Uh, at corporations. And every single one of them said that we can't avoid a recession. And most of them think a 
recession is going to come in the first half of 2023. Wow. And then Bitcoin uh, falling below 24,000 as 200 billion was wiped off the crypto market over the weekend. Um, Ricky, you know, we, we were always told that Bitcoin was supposed to operate independently of the markets, but it seems like it's really reacting to what's going on with the stock market. Yeah, it's not serving its theoretical purpose at all right now. Um, it sh- as you said, it should be exactly the inverse. But I think um, a lot of what happened is that people bought into crypto because it seemed like a thing to do. And if you do that, it's a long-term investment. I mean, right now I'm not enjoying mine at all whatsoever, but the theory is that over the long term it will gain value. And I think a lot of people got into it, got really panicked by what happened um, with the drops and it's their most volatile asset. So they sold off, which is pretty inevitable, but you're totally right. It should not be theoretically reacting that way. And so I think that's disappointing to a lot of crypto investors for sure. The promise of crypto was that it was supposed to be counter cyclical, right? To what you're saying, Corey, so that it it goes in the opposite direction of the market at times, right? I think what we're seeing right now is that it's super cyclical. What the market is doing, it's doing more dramatically. So when the market was soaring, crypto was soaring more than the market. But I think that some of the people who've been overselling it or selling it based on a false premise don't look really good right now. It should be working pretty much in inverse with inflation because the idea that there is a finite amount of like Bitcoin in the world is really appealing to people who are concerned about printing money and and you know we have an 8.6% inflation rate and so that's even even more of a a sense that it's not operating in the way that it should. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it at all. But Ravi, I'm very curious about the fact that it sounds like all of the economic experts are saying we are headed to a recession. What does that really mean? And what is the difference between a recession and say like an economic depression, for example? The way people typically talk about a recession experts is that they're talking about two consecutive quarters of economic decline, which they usually mean GDP declining plus something else like unemployment uh, and or like unemployment going up in that case. So that's like typically how people talk about it. There's actually an official body called the National Bureau of Economic Research, which they get the the fun job of declaring a recession. And they've declared 34 recessions since 1854, five since 1980. We've lived through a lot of those. Uh, And their definition is a little bit different. They say it's a significant decline in economic activity spread across the economy lasting a few months. And they take into account things like GDP, real income, meaning income after you take into account inflation, which is very relevant today, employment, industrial production, and retail sales. And they have the three Ds of, of the recession, which is depth, diffusion, and duration. So how deep uh, is the stagnation? How many people and different kinds of people are affected by it? So obviously, if it's only affecting a certain segment of society, it might not be a recession. Uh, and then the duration, how long it lasts. And they don't need all factors to be satisfied. So for example, in 2020, uh, it was super deep, but it didn't last very long. You know, the stocks had lost a third of their value in 33 days during the beginning of COVID, but then recovered within six months. So it wasn't really long, but still considered a recession. And it's also interesting because we opened this conversation talking about the fact that we're going into a bear market. And for people who aren't as uh, economically literate, I guess I should say, uh, this difference between, I always feel like the bear market, the bull market. I know we're not talking about like just Chicago sports teams here. So what is the difference between a bear market and a bull market, Ravi? From a practical perspective, there are different kinds of people. There are professionals, professional investors. And if you're a professional investor and, and you're getting this explanation from me, you're probably not going to last long in the field. But so I'm, I'm going to be talking here to our regular audience, right? People with 401ks. 
I treat the segments of those groups differently. There are people like my mom who has a 401k who's right on the cusp of retirement, a couple years of retirement, could retire any year now. Those are the people most at risk right now because if that duration piece, and a lot of people think this duration is going to last a, a while, uh, it's not going to be six months. It's, a lot of people don't think it's even going to be triggered for another six months, even as we see all this wealth disappearing. It's almost irrelevant whether we call it a recession or not when we're talking about $13 trillion worth of wealth being erased in society. That's just really bad for a lot of people, no matter what we call it. Now, if a re uh, an official recession, which means all a bunch of different factors um, are you know, diffuse factors and are super deep and are hitting people hard, doesn't even get triggered to the beginning of 2023 and then it lasts years, then we're talking about people with 401ks not being able to retire or having to make much different retirement decisions. So for those people, they're most at risk. And I think we as a society, and I think we're not going to get this from the government. I think we as people and family members and whatnot need to do everything we can as possible to help those people. I think the people that are in their 30s, 20s, maybe even 40s, different. Like for those people, I, you know, I'm not an investment advisor, but I think for those people, they have less urgent moves to make if all they were doing was saving for retirement and not short-term needs. And just politically speaking, it sounds like a lot of people are, are going to blame the Democrats and, and going to blame Biden for this. So, it, you know, as far as the midterms, seems like it's not going to be good for that side of things. Doesn't sound like it is going to be good. I think when people are really just being hit every single time they check out at the grocery store or every time they fill up a, a gallon of gas in their car, it's it's inevitable that it's going to come back to bite them. And of, of course, there's the pandemic history where a lot of the spending was done under the Trump administration. But I think the fact that it has continued for as long out of the pandemic as it has has not only exacerbated the economic problems that we have, but also... Um, frustrated people quite a lot. Well, let's move on. The conversation around legal marijuana is making a comeback as pundits like Laura Ingram connect weed to mass shootings. Now, the American people are hearing a lot about AR-15s and background checks, but they also deserve to hear about this as well. Respected medical studies for years now have demonstrated that pot use, especially among teens, can trigger psychosis and increase the chance that a young person will develop violent behaviors. Though considering the horrific carnage here, from other tragedies we already know about where high potency cannabis may have played a role, it's important that Americans have more answers. We deserve to know the truth about this multi-billion dollar and growing industry, how it's affecting our young people, our working age population, and even our military readiness. She's gotten a ton of flack for those remarks. And even if you think, as many do, that she's overstating the connection here, it does bring us to a point worth discussing. Are there real social risks involved with legalizing marijuana? And do we talk about those risks enough or just shrug them off? Ricky, what do you make of the recent discourse around legalized pot? For me, this is more of a conversation about do we talk about the dangers of marijuana and not legalization necessarily, because regardless of whether or not it's legal, it's circulating. And I would argue it's probably more dangerous, the forms that it's available in. Teenagers um, that were polled overwhelmingly said it was easier to buy illegal weed than legal beer um, when they were underage. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, the causality with psychosis and, and schizoaffective disorders and weed is not like necessarily a causal link where this was what like put it in someone's psyche. 
But I think there's a pretty wide variety of studies that do demonstrate that for people who might have um, either like a predisposition or maybe a little bit of a history with schizoaffective disorders that marijuana can trigger that and potentially worsen it. Um, about 8% of schizophrenia diagnoses right now are um, attributed at least in part to marijuana um, and with marijuana abuse. And that's up from like 1% of the respective uh, diagnoses just like a couple decades ago. So it's becoming more prevalent and 1.1% of the population is schizophrenic. So that's a, roughly a quarter of a million people who potentially had marijuana as a factor in that manifesting itself. That's definitely an important point to look at. Ravi, me and you, I mean, you're a little older than me, but we both grew up in a time period where weed was like super illegal. Like you just had a joint and you could go to jail for it. In the last 10 years, uh, we've seen 19 states and Washington, D.C. legalize marijuana for adults over 21. So what do you think uh, just are the initial effects of this mass legalization on this scale are? Yeah, I think for those of us who grew up in the 90s, it was illegal, but it was everywhere. I smoked pot for the first time when I was 12 years old. And what what I saw in my neighborhood is what the data bears out, which is that there's totally there was selective prosecution and often it wasn't random. So the ACLU looked at this and this was, you know, on the I graduated high school in, in 2001. And so this is right after I graduated high school. This is 2001 to 2020, 2010. There were 8 million pot arrests, which means there was a pot arrest every 37 seconds. And that even though there uh, is roughly similar use among white and black people, black people are 3.73 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people. So I saw this with the people around me, like, look, I got a, had a lot of friends get arrested. And so that is one reason why I'm generally supportive of legalization because of the disproportionate impact here. But then Cato Institute which admittedly is libertarian and, and is sympathetic to legalization, looked at two different waves of legalization and decriminalization that have happened in American society. A lot of people don't know this, but in the 70s, there was a huge wave of decriminalization. Some of that was eventually rolled back. But to the Cato Institute looked at the studies around that period of time when there was legalization. And then they looked at the most recent wave, which is a pretty massive wave of decriminalization, and essentially came down saying, if there is an effect of legalization on use, it is extremely modest. And, and, he, and they meant this for both people who are making claims that legalization is going to help a ton of people, uh, you know, like it's going to lead to more responsible use, et cetera, but also obviously for people who say that it's gonna to lead to more pathologies. Uh, they said it was extremely modest, if any effect, except for tax revenues, which obviously go up tremendously. So I think the data suggests that this is not a huge dramatic impact. And then if you're like me and you think that most personal vices should not be uh, the realm of the government, then to me, that's a pretty simple case that we should not be spending our, our resources and locking people up for this. And to your point, those 8.2 million arrests, 88% were for possession alone. Um, and I think that as a libertarian, that's like just not the world that I want to live in, people getting locked up for a drug that clearly circulates no matter what. And also 20 to 30% of drug cartel revenue comes from the, the sale of marijuana. And so this has created a a context in which an illegal market can thrive where, you know, laced weed is a problem. People die from sometimes it's more dangerous. It's unregulated and the wrong people are profiting off of a business that could be legitimate. I just think 
Um, and I agree that vices shouldn't be regulated, but I think that the conversation sometimes gets like weed good, weed bad, and it can be legal and there can be problems with it and abuses. And that's something that I think needs to be talked about. And I would say in my generation specifically, there was a lot of conversation back in the Reagan years about um, the schizoaffective disorders and marijuana, but I don't like, I didn't even know about that. And I'm someone personally with a family history and I... I feel like that needs to be talked about more and the and the risks involved need to be discussed and out in the open and something that we accept because we we accept the risks of alcohol in our, our culture. We accept the risks of a lot of different and dangerous vices, but um, being responsible about it, I think is just the most important thing. My sense is, correct me if I'm wrong, that when we say that the certain percentage of uh, people who exhibit schizophrenic uh, symptoms, like it was onset. It was it was first onset through the use of marijuana. We're not saying that the marijuana is the cause, right? Because they could have had another life incident later on that would have triggered the schizophrenia. Correct. So there's no way to prove the causality of it. Um, I mean, it seems like they tend to be people who are predisposed, but it's definitely a trigger. Like I, I and it's it's hard to know. Like you can't control for would this person be triggered by something else down the line. But there are um, a lot of different studies from across the world, and some of them have, um, or most of them have pointed to the fact that these are people that were fine before and are not now. Whether that would have happened in a different circumstance, like you never know. But I think that it's just not something worth playing with for a lot of people. And I don't think that they know that or understand that, myself included. Like when I got to college, I wish that that was something that I knew. I, I mean, I was never a, a like weed smoker in my life, but um, but I tried it and I wouldn't have had had I known that that was a risk. Especially when you go back to like the 2000s and even back in the 90s, this was starting. Originally, a lot of this was going towards medical marijuana. And there were all of these conversations about the use, the use cases for medical marijuana. Some of our research shows that it was effective for treating things like glaucoma. PTSD, nausea, uh, lessening tremors with people who have Parkinson's disease, um, everything from IBS to Crohn's disease, all these different things. We know cancer patients uh, were some of the original uh, first people that were prescribed medical marijuana. And then it jumped from like those use cases to just, it was useful for everything. I remember when I lived in California uh, in 2011, uh, getting a medical card was easier than getting a driver's license. I mean, you literally just went to one of these, you know, shady clinics from online and you say, oh, my, my back's hurting or I can't sleep well. And literally within like an hour, you were getting a card, you go to a dispensary and you could buy upwards of an ounce of marijuana. And there was no real regulation on it. And a lot of it was just sort of for profit. A lot of it, you, you pay these people like $100 or so to get that card. You have to renew it every year. I think that's one of my biggest problems is that so many people have touted this as this miracle drug that can cure everything under the sun. While we know there's a lot of research to show that it does help with a lot of different things, I think, you know, like anything else, if it is a medicine, then it should be regulated like a medicine. Yeah, I do think there's a bit of an incoherence there. And the proponents of uh, legalization, I think, have to untangle that because I think they were going after whatever... Uh, and I used to actually have an office below the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, and it, uh, interestingly, the Obama campaign office in D.C. was right below the Marijuana Policy Project in 2007 and 2008. And so we used to have some conversations. That doesn't seem like a coincidence. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we used to have some conversations on the roof. I won't say more about these issues. But what I find interesting about this, and this gets to what happens with 
the what, what happens when you legalize, which is you learn things. And this is why people shouldn't be maximalists about this, right? I think Colorado is a good example. When they legalized, and actually I interviewed Jared Polis yesterday, the governor of Colorado, a little bit about this, is that they, they uh, realized that the legalization was coinciding with, and in some cases may be ca- causal to this increased THC uh, content of the marijuana being consumed. And there were all these stories of people going to the emergency room because they ate one too many gummies, did not realizing how potent it was. And so there is a massive increase in the THC content in the edibles and other things that people are using that's coinciding with this. We could debate whether it's being it's causal or not, given the the sophistication now of the development of these products now that it's allowed to be out in the open. These are all important things for regulation, in my opinion. But in the end, I'm like, well, you know, if 70% of Americans report drinking alcohol, which is the data I saw, and only 15% report in 2017 uh, smoking marijuana, like it is a weirdly incoherent area of American law right now that you have a schedule one drug from the federal government in marijuana, which by most estimations seems to me Definitely no worse for you than alcohol and probably a lot better for you than alcohol uh, and certainly way less incidence of things like domestic violence and stuff connected to the use of marijuana. Um, but we allow people to drink, uh, but we don't like we still haven't quite figured out what we're doing with marijuana seems like an area where we want to probably untangle that, that inconsistency. I'm in favor of legalization only because I don't think people should be g- being locked up and thrown in prison for having, you know, a dime bag of weed on them. I think that's ridiculous. I think that's a, a huge waste of our resources. You know, it seems like the decision here is either between making money off of the tax revenue or spending billions on locking people up for it. So I'm, I'm definitely for the former there. But I just, you know, personally speaking, I've known so many people who have just, you know, you know, I feel like with marijuana, it's, it's, it's different for everybody. I've known people who've been able to use it pretty consistently and still lead fairly productive lives and still be fairly productive members of society. Uh, I myself would have been uh, included in that category a few years ago. Uh, but I've also known people that just sit around and do it like all day long. And literally their only goal in life is like, you know, where's my next bit of weed going to come from? I mean, it is, like you said, a vice and I think we have to treat it as such, just like how we treat alcohol. I think it's something that we shouldn't necessarily ban, uh, but it's something that we should definitely regulate and definitely teach young people, especially children, that, hey, this is something that you can take too far, like anything. This is something that you can, that can ruin your life if you take it too far, just like with alcohol. Even though I am a proponent of legalization, I do want to share one data point that opponents uh, mention, which is that uh, one in 15 people who drink, drink daily. So not a lot of people who drink, drink daily. One in five people who report using marijuana at all over the course of a year do it daily, which which is defined by at least 300 days out of a year. So there is more of a daily use case with marijuana, which just gets to the education front. Like we, there's a, probably a different conversation that we need to have as a society around educating people on the abuse of the substance. One important factor that like goes into this abuse conversation is age. I think that when you start smoking is really um, a huge factor. One in 10 people develop cannabis use disorder, like in the general population, which is just essentially some form of like essential, essentially addiction or um, problematic use of some sort. And that's compared with one in six people who start as adolescents. Um, I think it it stunts development in some way, shape, or form is sort of what people are finding. And I think, you know, it 
also depends on how how much of your life do you have on track before you do something that might be like a little bit of a demotivation, I guess. But I think the conversations around age and legalizing it with an age restriction is probably a fair way to kind of circumvent this. I think people would respect a certain age demographic threshold, maybe more than with drinking because it it just is culturally not a thing. Um, and I even think if we made the drinking age 18, uh, people would wait longer if it's a reasonable regulation and a reasonable cap. And I think in this sort of situation, if people are informed about the risks, informed about the risks of early use, then they would probably largely respect a, a more reasonable start age than they do in the current context right now. It does seem like chronic use of this could be problematic, but as long as states keep giving people the green light to do it, it seems like more people are probably going to be doing it. Uh, let's move on. Last week, police arrested a man who showed up outside Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home in Maryland, saying he planned to kill him with a gun in his bag. The man told authorities he was upset about the leaked draft opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade and thought Kavanaugh might also vote to loosen gun laws. But Ricky, an attempt on a Supreme Court justice's life like this, this is exactly what we feared might happen the last time we talked about the court. Yeah, I think um, some people sort of dismissed concerns about things like this as overblown, but this is what happens when something as consequential as this opinion is leaked. I mean, it's not inevitable, and clearly this is a very disturbed individual. Um, he was from California, 26-year-old, who um, showed up at 1 a.m. and saw that there were uh, mar federal marshals protecting the house and walked away and called 911 on himself and was very, very open about the fact that this decision and preventing Kavanaugh from voting on it, as well as gun rights, ironically, even though he was going to kill him with a firearm, um, was what motivated him. And I think it's unfortunate that this didn't really get a ton of coverage or as much as I think it would have um, in other circumstances. It was like on page 820 in the New York Times buried in the back. This is hugely consequential. There are nine people on the Supreme Court with enormous power. And when something is leaked before it's supposed to be, people take things into their own hands, unfortunately. And so I, this hopefully will be another push to allow Supreme Court justices to have uh, more security in, in line with other politicians. I think this is a pretty simple situation. And it seems like when you see Congress voting overwhelmingly for this, when, you know, you don't see that very often on a lot of issues. It's just pretty straightforward, like high profile members of the U.S. government <clears throat> or any government should have security uh, commensurate with the risks to their lives. It does seem like there was two different kinds of people voting against this. There were the people who, who from Jersey, who I think there was a specific Jersey issue with a federal judge there. I think the Jersey people wanted to increase uh, general security for all federal judges. So it wasn't, I don't think they were necessarily opposed to more Supreme Court funding, but they wanted more funding for federal judges. It seems like there was some kind of workaround potentially uh, there, but then there were other people who I think had a less defensible position in voting against this. Yeah, those other people include people like Congresswoman AOC and members of the, the so-called squad. I mean, what do we think about the fact that these political conversations are getting so contentious that people are thinking about taking things in their own hand and, and, and trying to assassinate a Supreme Court justice, which to my knowledge has never happened before in American history. This is where consistency comes in. Everybody needs to see the humanity in people they disagree with, right? Brett Kavanaugh, AOC, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush was recently revealed that there was, you know, and there are so many of these we don't hear about because the, the Secret Service and diplomatic security who I've spent a lot of time with when I was at the State Department, they have an interest in making sure that there are not too many reports of these things because they don't want to be creating the impression 
that it's easier than it is to assassinate somebody. And so there's a lot of this kind of stuff that we don't even hear about. Yeah, we'll definitely have to keep a lookout on that story. The Biden administration is at odds with the world of charter schools as the Department of Education sets down new rules for how those schools are funded. Ravi, as our resident charter school expert, why are these new rules from the Biden administration drawing so much controversy from charter supporters? So we've covered this in a previous segment, so we'll link to that segment, but I'll do a brief primer on this. The stage has been now set for a big fight federally because charter schools depend upon, to start, uh, federal funding uh, from this grant called the Charter School Program Grant, which gives hundreds of millions of dollars out to charter schools to start. I, uh, full disclosure, got federal uh, funding, over $10 million in federal funding to start charter schools over my time in uh, Mississippi and Tennessee. And they're essential. You need these grants in order to start because you just can't create a school out of nowhere. You have to find a facility. You need to hire teachers before the revenue comes in, et cetera. So these are really important. Now, there's been a bipartisan consensus for a long time about preserving this uh, charter school program grant. So you have people like Ted Cruz being on the same page with somebody like Michael Bennett about this program by and large, right? Now, the Biden administration has been pretty hostile to charter schools. He said on the campaign trail that he is not a fan of charters, and now he's actually delivering on his promise. And he's uh, his Department of Education has proposed changes to rules that we've covered previously uh, that a lot of charter school supporters view as a uh, backdoor way to decrease the funding to charter schools. And I tend to agree with those people. Well, Ravi, according to a top U.S. Department of Education official, roughly 15 percent of the charter schools that receive federal startup funding either never open or close within a few years. Now, one of the new rules that the Biden administration is issuing is basically saying that it is barring the use of some of the funding that it gives these schools until the charter school has an actual facility and that facility is approved to physically open. Uh, is, is that an unreasonable request from the Biden administration? 235 charter schools closed in, in 2019, 2020, out of a total of 1,130 public schools that closed. Nobody looks at those other ones and says, well, how much Title I funding are they getting? What kind of other federal funding they have? And that's quote unquote waste. You know, schools opening and closing are part of the game, especially for charters who, like I said, it's part of the promise is that if they're not working, we shut them down. So in some cases, I view that not as waste, but as actually us, you know, just cutting our losses and not saying this is a sunk cost. I also think there's this sense like, well, are we using the same yardstick for these other schools? 37% of 12th graders in the most recent NAEP assessment, so the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is the way we measure proficiency on basic things like math and reading, only 37% of 12th graders across the country are proficient in reading, meaning after this whole time we're spending all this money, $762 billion a year, they're proficient. And that means to me that the federal government has quote unquote wasted $49 billion a year, or the, the country as a whole has quote unquote wasted $480 billion a year. Now, I don't, we don't talk like that about general public schools, but we seem to only talk about it with charter schools. I completely agree with you that I think that 15% it sounds like a lot in one sense, but then on the flip side, it's great that, you know, a school can fail if it needs to, whereas our public school system just doesn't allow that to happen, even though we have actively failing schools and the, and the market can respond to whether or not a school is actually 
uh, fulfilling the needs of students around them. And that's one other aspect of the uh, Biden administration's new regulations that I have an issue with is the idea that they need to prove unmet demand, which essentially requires uh, in order to get a charter, you need to show that the schools around you are over enrolled, which is kind of an asinine idea to me, because if schools are over or under enrolled, they they can be failing still. And and you don't need to necessarily have a packed school in order to have an unmet demand. like schooling need. And so I think that's unnecessarily punitive. And the largest issue I have with this beyond just the statistic of 15% that I don't find as a satisfying reason not to invest in the possibility of the other 85% that do succeed. Yeah, I'm always confused as to why the left dislikes charters as much as they do. And I, I did a little bit of research about it. I have a question for you, Robbie. Explain to me a little bit about this lottery system that a lot of charters operate off of. Lotteries uh, exist in places where there's huge demand uh, for the seats uh, and more demand than there, is, than there are seats. And by law, in most places, including in Tennessee, where I did it, and in Mississippi and in New York, uh, you have to run a random selection lottery in order to pick the person that goes to that school. And in a lot of cases, in order to be proper about it, like what we would do is we'd either have the district run the lottery for us so that we can say we didn't in any way mess with the system or we hire an accounting firm to do it because they usually have safeguards um, about like, you know, walling off different incentives and whatnot. And what I love about that is it it's not about how rich you are. It's not about uh, whether you have the right connections which is how a lot of schools work. It's not about like how public magnet schools work. You don't test into these schools. Uh, It is strictly random if there are too many people applying for the seats that we have. And you look in certain cities like New York where they're just humongous lottery lists where there are just people clamoring to get into these schools and they're saying that there's a huge demand. But the random nature of that lottery, I mean, don't you see that there could be some criticism to say, well, you know, we applied for this charter school. We didn't win the lottery. So now my child has to go to this uh, possibly subpar public school while someone next door to me was able to win the lottery. I mean, doesn't that still create a little bit of a um, disadvantage for the for the people who don't get in? Yeah, it's appalling. And it's particularly why I hate these Biden administration regulations, because what they would say then is if you live in a district, which is almost every district in America over the past few years that shows overall declining enrollment, even if there's that huge demand, like for instance, in New York for Success Academy, for example, that what the Biden administration is saying is that we're not going to give Success Academy money to expand and offer more opportunities for all those people on that list. We're going to tell you, you have to go to that school that you don't think is right for your kid. Why? They don't really explain it. Well, Ravi, I think from all of that, I can determine your position on this particular issue. Um, But, you know, this is one of those things where we'll just have to see, you know, how these charter schools respond to the Biden administration's actions and just have to keep an eye on it. So moving on, as the war in Ukraine drags on, the conflict appears to be shifting in Russia's favor, at least in the eastern part of the country. Russian forces are solidifying their hold on the Donbass region, while Ukraine's casualties are mounting under relentless shelling. 
This whole conflict looks a lot different than it did a few months ago. Ricky, what is the latest on the ground? So as you said, Putin's continuing to target this eastern portion of Ukraine. And Ukraine's forces are far from any point of collapse. But um, Zelensky is fearing that this is just going to become an entire takeover of the whole country. He said earlier this week, quote, they have the idea of occupying the whole country. They demonstrated this in the first weeks of the war. This is their objective. And that seems to be likely the case that he will Putin's forces will start to advance further and further toward the towards the West. Um, and from the humanitarian angle, things continue to be pretty terrible in Ukraine. Um, two and three children have been displaced by the war. There are around 600 to 1,000 casualties a day, 20,000 over the course of a month. Um, and the UN, which, as, again, we have mentioned before, is um, conservative with their estimates on a civilian deaths and casualties, has estimated 5,499 civilian injuries and 4,432 civilian deaths. Um, and one of the most major things that we've as the Western collective has done to try to deter Russia is to impose bans or um, sanctions on oil and energy. But essentially, the result has been Russia's just found new markets is kind of circumventing it, um, even sending crude oil through India that ultimately American and European consumers are purchasing in the end. And they're still making plenty of money to be funding this war. And the sanctions, unfortunately, just haven't really panned out. Yeah, it seems like, you know, we were all on Ukraine's side, mostly here in the Western region of the world. And Russia, you know, has, has it just seems like they're outlasting Ukraine's energy and efforts here. It also seems like Russia started very swiftly, like they thought they were going to be able to do this really quickly. And then Ukraine's resistance was much more than they thought it was going to be. And now Russia is, you know, doing a different strategy of we're just going to stay in this eastern region. We're going to take this a little slower. And uh, it seems to be you know, working for them for the, for the most part. Um, Ravi, what do you think about, you know, the domestic response here? It seems like, you know, a couple months ago, everybody had the Ukraine flag on their profile picture. And now people are hardly even talking about Ukraine anymore. I think my view is a little distorted because I live right near a Ukrainian village uh, in New York City. And so I still see and hear and talk to people who are really animated by this. Uh, for me, I, I do want the American public to continue to be alarmed about what's going on. But for me, it's most important that the federal government continues to provide assistance to Zelensky, which appears to continue to be the case. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. I think the unfortunate reality is that outside of the military assistance that we're providing, there's only so much we can do. But there are a couple of things that I have my eye on, especially you have Russia, who's, uh, you know, has their uh, energy exports are still pretty healthy, even though they've gone down uh, slightly. Um, since the beginning of this conflict. And it's because the EU is so hooked on Russian energy that really there's very little they could do. 60% of exports are to the EU. They did, uh, the EU did ban uh, imports by sea by the end of 2022, but they can't agree on a full ban. And, you know, it's kind of just picking the mechanism by which the, the oil comes to your country seems kind of besides the point, especially given the fact that India's increased its imports from 1% to 18% from Russia. And a lot of the imports going into the EU, and in some cases the U.S., are going from Russia to India to the EU and the U.S. circumventing some of these bans anyway. So if I were the U.S., I'd probably want to tinker with that to see if there's something we could do to uh, to stop the flow of oil out of Russia. But then that will lead to the increase of energy prices around 
the world, which is something the Biden administration might not want. And so we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Yeah, hopefully the American public and the West in general just continues to remember that the Ukraine situation is a very serious one, a very dire one, and doesn't lose sight of it in the grand scheme of everything. And that's why we continue here at Lost Debate to continue to give you updates on Ukraine uh, whenever possible. So you remember that it's still going on. Well, Ravi, you may be in Italy right now, but that doesn't get you off the hook for a wild idea this week. So what do you got for us as far as one of your radical proposals? So I've been thinking about this, you know, about the fact that we can't get anything done in this country, barely can pass any legislation, never mind, like, it seems like there are certain amendments to the constitution we may want to consider and stuff like that, but that would be unthinkable. There's, There's no way we're ever changing our constitution in these politics and never mind passing just sensible things, uh, never mind experimenting with ideas. We're really bad as a country with saying, well, this idea could work, let's try it, right? In some cases, federalism takes care of that, but not really, uh, especially given the sheer amount of federal regulation that prevents states from doing certain things. So what I'm proposing is that we create a system for creating a few charter cities. I don't mean charter in the sense of schools. I just literally mean by the word, meaning um, we... Uh, and there are a couple mechanisms that we could use here, but uh, we allow uh, citizens to build a couple of cities. We could put them out in the middle of nowhere, like the desert, like the way that Las Vegas was created. Uh, and we allow them to write their own constitution and create a new form of government within the United States. And we can give them a certain limit, say 10 years, to you know show us that this is a worthwhile experiment. And I'd be curious to see what happens. I think we'll learn something and and it's possible that uh, these will be extremely livable places that a lot of people want to move to. Do these governments operate independently of the federal government? Yeah, totally independent. Obviously, we could create some rules about things that couldn't happen there. But then you could be like, look, you could legalize heroin if you want. You could you could have a casino on every corner. You could you know do some of my crazy ideas that I've talked about that have no chance of passing. Uh, You could have a 0% income tax rate. You could be totally socialist. And I think it would help answer some of the questions that we have as a society. And if we do a few of them, we could have a few controlled experiments about some of these ideas that we kick around in society, but have never fully committed ourselves to. Isn't like, what was it, Chaz or Chop or whatever that autonomous zone was like essentially a version of that that just was like terrible and went totally awry? Like, I'm not sure what sort of people you attract to live in these experimental places and potentially self-destruct. Yeah, two ways this could go. One is people can apply to the government with an idea to be like, look, I have this vision. So that's one. The other, which is my favorite, is that uh, we look at the voter rolls and we say, all right, we're going to preference super civically minded people who show up to vote a lot. And we're going to just randomly select let's say a certain amount of people and they don't have to go, but they, they, we do it on a rolling basis. And we say, we're inviting you (laughs) to be a part of the continental Congress of this new town. And then just random selection of of people coming together. It's like real world, except for cities. Uh, And (laughs) they just, we just see what they can do. People have jobs and families and, and I, I feel like you just get a, a society full of drifters. I'm not sure about this. Robbie, just because someone votes a lot, that doesn't necessarily mean they have good ideas for for a, a country. Like, you do get that, right? Well, then you'd be a proponent of plan A, <laughs> like, which is fine. I'd be willing to do that one, which is the application process. You know, we could. And look, I think that 
good companies do this. They have skunk works. They're like, let's try an idea or whatever. Uh, and you know what? I think the best version of this is that we have a less authoritarian version of Singapore within our boundaries, like a super innovative city state that's doing things that other people don't, but maybe with more democracy. I think you're just advocating like the federalist system of local governments having more power over what happens in in their domestic yeah. sphere. And I think that's a really great thing. I don't know if I would like start new projects entirely, but I, decentralizing power is certainly something I'm I'm in favor of. Um, and also just like putting actual ideas and concepts on the back of a ballot and letting voters decide, like, do you want to legalize weed or something like that? That that I'm all for. The other stuff I think is sounds like a like weird communes to me that I don't really yeah. know. Cult like. Yeah, Robbie. Like wild, wild yeah. country for for uh, cities. If you ever seen the Netflix, yeah. You know, there's an episode of Family Guy where Peter declares his property its own country uh, and calls it Pretoria, I think. And that's what it sounds like. You're trying to create a bunch of Pretorias. Uh, but what would happen if one of these states decided to go rogue and decided to just not come back to America after the 10-year period and declared themselves independent forever? Like, wouldn't that start some type of war? Well, I think like one of the stipulations we'd have is that they'd have to be the equivalent of Costa Rica, no military. So if you're going to operate within our boundaries, there's certain things that you can't do and you can't, can't build up a military. Otherwise, we'll wipe you out <laughs> because I think you know, we're, we're being really generous here to let them create these new cities. I think it's an interesting concept. I think you should write like a book about it. I just have to say, as a guy who spends a lot of time in Costa Rica, they have no military. It's a great country. You know, super happy, great healthcare system. Atul Gawande wrote a great article about it. Like, there are a lot of things you could do when you don't have to spend money on a military. Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's an interesting one. Well, we'll have, to, we'll have to think about that one, Robbie. Well, we want to thank you all for listening and watching us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.